Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Did you file your taxes this year? Did you do them yourself or pay someone to file them for you? Filing taxes can be complicated, but how do you feel about finances in general? Today, where we live, we focus on financial literacy. What kinds of financial lessons would have helped you when you were a school student? Coming up, we'll hear about a program at Southern Connecticut State University that advises students about finances like budgeting and using credit wisely. First, on Zoom with us today, Nan Morrison, President and CEO of the Council for Economic Education. Its mission is to give students personal finance tools and economic knowledge that can help them and their communities. Nan, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Uh, So happy to be here this morning with you. So when we talk about financial literacy in schools, what does that look like across our country, Nan? Well, when we teach financial literacy, we are talking about some uh, five or six things that we classify as standards. So things like earning income, buying goods and services, saving, of course, using credit, investing, and even protecting and insuring six very basic topics, and we teach that K through 12. Sadly, across the country, the state of things is not great. Only 21 of the states require a course in personal finance to be taught in school for kids to be graduate, for for, uh, students to graduate. And of those 21, only six are actually standalone, really focused courses. In the other states, that topic is integrated into other classes, which is okay, but not ideal. You're talking to us here in Connecticut. Is Connecticut on the list? Connecticut, sadly, is not on the list, but Lou and I had a chance to talk a little bit beforehand, and I think we might might brew some stuff up together to see if we can move the ball forward on that. So when we talk about financial literacy, it's really uh, fragmented. So some school districts may offer it, as you mentioned, as an elective. Only six require it before uh, they graduate. But when you look at all the different communities in our country, are these financial literacy requirements often found in wealthier communities, Nan, in their schools? Yeah, so sadly, like so many other resources in our country, there is uh, unequal distribution of these resources. So in a state where there's a requirement, most students will, will get, uh, will, will be, will have to take that requirement. So they'll, they'll have that. Um, but only one in five students in U.S. high schools, according to our, our friends over at NextGen Personal Finance, are required to take that class. So when you look at states that don't require it, the story is not so happy Because if you live in a wealthy community in one of those states versus if you live in a poor community, there's a much greater likelihood that you, in fact, will have access to financial education. In fact, uh, we have uh, quoted some of uh, the research uh, on that uh, in our 2020 survey of the states, which looks at the state of financial and economic education across the country. So there's almost a 16-point gap 
between wealthier communities and poor communities in terms of whether um, these you're getting access if uh, personal finance is not required. That's 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 pretty sad. Um, it's especially painful when you realize that financial education, even in the high, at the high school level, has really positive effects for kids going forward. They tend to have higher credit scores uh, when they go into the real world. They have lower loan default rates, and they tend to be able to access better forms of college financing, more scholarships, and a better portfolio of lower cost loans, just because they have the knowledge and the education to, to ask the right questions. When I think of financial literacy in schools, I naturally think about uh, high schoolers getting that kind of of learning. But when we think about kids in elementary school, even middle school, what should they be learning then, Nan? Well, so the elementary piece is one of my favorite parts of this. Uh, at CE, we do family financial literacy nights for elementary school kids and their parents. And the kids just love it. They go from station to station doing math games, usually, that involve personal finance, and they, they just have a great time. So, um, so we actually have these standards in the six topics that I mentioned, earning income, buying goods and services, savings, investing. And, and they, we've actually identified benchmarks for what kids should learn at every stage, what they should know about some of these things. So let me give you an example of what we expect a fourth grader to know. For example, on earning income, a fourth grader should understand that workers are paid in different ways, salaries, wages, commissions, and they're asked to explain how a waitress, a teacher, or realtor earn their income, make money. So this is fourth grade, not high school. Uh, the other key to teaching personal finance is the key to teaching everything. Make it fun and interesting. And this is really easy because it relates to the real world, things that kids are seeing and doing every day. So um, one of my favorite exercises is that we teach about uh, compound interest using jelly beans. We do that with second and third graders. Uh, for our K through five after school program, K through five, we have a card game that talks about savings. We have another game where kids earn income doing different things and they need to amass a certain number of cards so that they can see what they would need to earn to, to do something that they might want to do, like have a pet, which is something that a lot of kids really wanted to do during the pandemic in particular. So, so the key here is fun, engaging activities for the students that are geared toward their age level, make it connected to something real, and um, not to be not to shy away from the topic because kids are really interested in learning. They're they're just natural sponges for almost anything. I understand that you have some tips on your website at the Council for Economic Education. We'll tweet that out at where we live. You're hearing Nan Morrison, President and CEO of the Council for Economic Education, or CEE. Uh, do you think that technology has made it easier or harder for kids and families uh, to think about financial literacy, Nan? What are some examples? So in some ways easier and in some ways a little harder. Uh, so easier in that we several years ago started doing more webinars for teachers so we could reach more teachers in more communities and help them be better educators. One of the things that uh, research has indicated is that teachers often don't know the material themselves. They're just like every other average American who sometimes struggles with this stuff and nobody wants to teach something that they don't feel super competent in. 
So technology has allowed us to reach more effectively and easily more teachers in uh, places that are often in marginalized communities, which are not you know, nearby to a place where they can get financial education easily. So that certainly helps the kids. On the other hand, I think technology has been, um, you know, there's a lot of information available, but it makes it harder for people to sort out what's what sometimes. And um, I, when I was growing up, I had a very visceral sense of money, right? I, I went to my dad's radio station with him. We counted the coins that came out of the candy, uh, the soda machine. We went to the bank. We deposited it. I had a little, you know, bank book that I had for my own savings account uh, that I put my birthday money in and other things. So I had a very visceral sense of money. When I budgeted, I had cash in my, my wallet at the beginning of the week when I was in college. And that had to last until the end of the week. And if it didn't, that was that. Um, and now um, it's harder. I mean, it's easier in some ways um, to move money around, uh, to keep track of things, to have those tools, which technology enables. On the other hand, I think we've lost a little bit of that visceral mm -hmm. sense. That's why I love a lot of the activities that we do with kids, because it engages them, active learning, and they start to get a sense of the doing around money and thinking about it. So then if they use one of today's common tools, Venmo or, or even Zelle, moving money through bank accounts, they, they, they kind of have a better understanding of what they're, they're doing. So, so like everything else, technology is, has its advantages, but uh, you still have to be a person using the technology thoughtfully. I'm glad you brought up that point because I remember also going to the bank with my mom as a child and now my husband and I we can just deposit checks using our bank phone app and so our kids aren't going to the bank with us we don't even really roll coins anymore do you remember doing that Nan when you were a kid? <laughs> I, I loved it it was so exciting when I finally was able to do the quarters because they were so big um, but, you know, I know that it might seem a little odd, but even showing your, ch your children, Lucy, when you're doing that so that you, because it's an opportunity, see, I'll never miss these with people. Um, it's an opportunity to talk to them about savings and that you received money from something for some reason. Um, you can talk to them about why, if, if it's appropriate, and you can show them the act of putting it in the bank. And even if it's a reimbursement for something, and I don't know how old your kids are, you can kind of fluff over that because just the act of watching you put money in the bank starts to uh, let them know that this is something that we do in our family. We put money in the bank. We save money. And the allowance, I think it can be a good tool as well, because I know my kids will save it up and then there's something they really want, but they understand that, you know, there's a cost to things. And one minute you might have $40, the next minute you just have $2 left. It's going to take some time to get back, get your allowance uh, back up, uh, uh, Nan. And so what are some other ways that, that parents can work with children just at home um, before we focus more on, on the school aspect? Yeah, so the the first and most important thing is just not being able to afraid, afraid to have a conversation about money. So many parents have said to me at family financial literacy nights, I, I was afraid to talk to my, my kid about this, but, but they're actually interested and they're engaged in it. This is great. I thought they would be afraid or or that it would it would stress be stressful to them. It's usually not the case. So first just just have the conversation. You know, if you're going out to buy the refrigerator that broke down, you can talk to them about the decision process that you're making. Now, they might not understand everything, 
but it's just like learning a language. You have to start, you know, introducing the words and the vocabulary to them when they're they're younger, so that as they get older, they'll they'll remember those things. They'll start to have the tools to have the conversation with you. Um, so so engaging engaging your child is the most important thing. I, I was so fortunate that my parents just naturally talked about this at the dinner table with me. Um, the other thing that they can do is. Um, uh, go online to the Council for Economic Education, councilforeconed.org, um, or they can just Google family financial fund packs. And we've put together grade banded fund packs for parents to do with their kids. And they draw on some of our favorite lessons. Uh, we also, when we were designing this, we picked out activities that didn't require people to spend money. You don't have to go to Amazon and, and order a bunch of expensive things to do these activities usually some paper, some scissors, a few coins will get you there. Um, so, so we suggest that you go, they're banded K2, 3, 5, uh, uh, middle school and high school, and, and engage in some of these activities with your kids or uh, with another family. Uh, so everybody does it, does it together. Um, and I think those, those have been found to be really, really useful. We've gotten great feedback on those. We uh, leverage the activities that we do at our family financial fund nights when we all went offline, uh, and we're glad that, that we did that. So that's another great, great resource for, uh, for parents. Delcy is calling in from Milford. Hi, Delcy. What did you learn in school? Well, I grew up in New York City, and um, in the New York City public school system, they provided banking systems for youngsters from fourth grade on. So we all had a bank book, and we deposited anywhere from a quarter to a dollar. And on the high school level, um, you had to take economics. It was state-mandated. So it had nothing to do with the wealth of a community, but rather the state required this. In addition, um, the government printing office publishes or used to print a lot of material on money and education for students. So I just thought I'd pass those thoughts on. Well, thank you, Delcia, for that call. You know, we've been talking, Nan Morrison, uh, about just basic uh, uh, financial uh, lessons like money management, saving. But I was thinking back to uh, when the recession uh, was came about, and so many people uh, were not only dealing with having trouble uh, paying their uh, mortgages, but remember how the credit card companies and the skyrocketing uh, interest rates, and and people didn't know how to to handle all of that. I'm just wondering what lessons can we be learning today about credit. And are there laws that are protecting consumers today when we think about credit card companies? Right. Well, um, uh, it's me, actually, the biggest lesson of, of any one of these financial crises, the 2008 crisis, mm-hmm. which was, uh, you know, hit mortgage holders in poor communities particularly hard. Uh, and in this uh, most recent crisis of the pandemic, seeing the miles-long food line lines at the food banks um, within you know moments really of uh, the community shutting down really says to me clearly people need help need help and it's the biggest argument for getting this education into the schools you know there are lots of organizations that help uh, people young adults uh, to solve problems but boy it's a lot less expensive and way less stressful to avoid them. And there's actually research that came out just just in the past week that talks about the connection between stress and money problems. 
So um, the best lesson to me that comes out of all of this is please, if your state doesn't have a requirement, do whatever you can to get to get this this passed. Um, you know, Delcy also mentioned some government resources. And I might also mention here that the um, CFPB has um, published uh, on their website, they have a lot of really good lists of where to go for help and good resources to build your build your knowledge about um, a variety of financial topics. And I would say that they are a um, reasonably trusted trusted resource. Um, we review some of their their materials as it goes as it relates to personal finance and financial education, and we think they do a really really good job there. Um, so, so that's one place to go um, if you're interested in savings vehicles, especially for retirement. IRS.gov clearly outlines all of those different types of things. And even if you're a high school student starting your first job and it's only part-time, you can put a little tiny bit of money away in an IRA and that money starts to grow and that'll be growing with you for 30, 40, 50 years. And I know it seems super far away, but even just a few dollars from every paycheck can make a giant difference. And before I take a call, Nan, going back to the consumer protections that are available since the recession, are credit card companies having to be more transparent about interest rates? You know, I, I think that since 2008, there, there's been, I, I get notices all the time from credit card companies about what the interest rates are, uh, what their policies are. Um, I hate to say it, but people still have to read these, right? I don't, I don't like to, to blame people who are having challenges at all, but, but the information is there. Um, I was just fortunate enough to be able to refinance my mortgage and the disclosures are pretty clear. Uh, so, um, and, and it came with a book from the CFPB all about mortgages, which I have to say was also very well done. Um, I have no specific relationship with CFPB. We don't receive money from them, but, but the resources are, are, are good. So, um, you know, I grew up in a household where we only used credit cards to buy things for convenience. We only use them to buy things that we can, we could afford. Um, when I got uh, out of a uh, business loan was setting up my first household, I actually used a credit card to buy a few things that I uh, couldn't afford straight away uh, for my house, uh, towels, things like that. And um, I have to say, uh, took six months to pay that off and never again right like you start seeing those interest charges and those numbers are, are really big the number looks big when you read 15 18 percent then when you start paying it off it's, it's frightening it's just frightening so so the answer is um you know get in front of that right understand what credit is how it works how to use it wisely um and you know understanding you know, how to make a budget, what are the things that are important to you, the choices that you want to make, the things that you want to save for for the long term, and then use it, using credit wisely and appropriately um, is, is, the, is the way to go. Um, otherwise, you're going to get stuck. You're hearing Nan Morrison, President and CEO of the Council for Economic Education. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, I'm going to take some listener calls, and we'll continue talking with Nan about financial literacy. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. 
ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. What financial lessons have you learned that stayed with you? When I was in high school, my father told me how interest worked and why I shouldn't have more than one credit card. And he always told me, don't leave a balance. His words led me to always try and put more money towards the principal when I was paying off student loans or car payments. And I thought of it like I was pulling over one on the companies who gave me these loans in the first place. You're not making much money off of me. Today, we're talking about financial literacy with my guest, Nan Morrison, President and CEO of the Council for Economic Education. Sally's calling in from Greenwich. Hi, Sally. Hi. Good morning. What did you want to share? Um, well, you know, I just, first of all, I just wanted to thank Nan Morrison for the work she's doing and reinforce, you know, the message and need for advocacy around financial literacy in schools. I mean, I have a, I have a, um, a high school student who, while entering high school, realized that he could very well graduate and, and not learn anything about personal finance. And as a sophomore, he went out and petitioned NYU to take their graduate program in certified financial planning so that he would, you know, graduate with an awareness and very early on just kind of realize that understanding money creates, um, helps to create freedom. So he went back to his school and created a program that mirrors um, on a different level what he was learning um, at NYU. And it's wildly popular. And so, you know, when uh, just kind of reinforcing the message that you think that kids, that the topic is over their head or maybe they're not interested. And in fact, it, you know, they, they are incredibly interested and really wanting to take control and have knowledge about their finances and financial freedom. So, you know, just to thank, thank you, Nan, for the work that you're doing. And thank you, um, you know, uh, to, to NPR for getting the message out. It's, it's important. And I, I wish more states would mandate um, financial literacy as um, as a program to graduate high school. Well, thank you, Sally, for calling in and telling us about uh, what your son was able to do. I love that financial literacy club. Nan, did you want to add anything? As well, and also that that was a story in Virginia where it was really the students that, that rallied to have a requirement to teach personal finance uh, passed. And I remember seeing uh, a friend's son who had just graduated from high school and he said, Aunt Nan, I'm so bummed. I can't believe this passed the year after I graduated. I really could have uh, used this. Of course, his mother was mortified. So you could always ask us, but, but sometimes kids don't want to talk about it with their parents. Um, and as much as you talk about it at home, which is great, once they're teenagers, they'd really rather talk about it with somebody else, their peers, their teachers, um, get it from school. Uh, so Sally, thanks so much for all of the important messages that you just reinforced as a as a, a parent of a, a school-age kid, and, and kudos to your son. He sounds great. 
Can we talk about reality check, uh, Nan? When we think about uh, when teenagers are thinking about their future plans, uh, everyone likes to think about a dream college and your dream career and uh, being able, um, as Sally mentioned, uh, you know, having the freedom to do what you want. But let's start with college because sometimes dream college means hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans. And so how can we start having this conversation where parents are also being realistic and not feeding into this idea that my child has to go to a particular school to get ahead? Right. Well, um, you know, the particular school thing is a distinctly, you know, middle and upper middle class problem um, because um, and, you know, I I know that we're on Connecticut Public Radio and I listen to public radio. Um, and 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 sadly, most of those people are going to be able to figure out the money piece. But but it's really comes back to the fundamentals around, um, you know, what kind of choices make sense for me, given what my goals are. And uh, we actually have a college and career readiness program that we work on with high school. We've started to translate that and pilot that into college and career nights for families with high school students to talk about these issues. Um, because as Lou will talk about later, you know, the downstream effects of not being thoughtful about this in, in, in high school um, can be really challenging for students. So as part of this, we, we ask kids to really think about, you know, what it is that they would like to do. Um, where do they think life is taking them? Not at a detailed level, um, but there are always options, right? So there might be an option to go to the honors college uh, at a state school um, instead of a small liberal arts college, which will still get you a very fine education and a lot of prestige, um, but may cost less. Um, and there are people that don't actually understand what those options are. So just being able to explore options understand the loan system, which is really complex today, way more complicated, I, I'm sure, than, than when, when I was applying for, uh, for loans coming out of high school. Just getting that understanding in college from some trusted resources is, re is really important and being willing to make the choices. I mean, and even in the, the, not to be political, but I always listen, whoever's president, to the State of the Union speeches. And uh, President Biden talked about the need for alternative kinds of educations, not necessarily a four-year degree, career and technical education. Uh, you know, there's, there, there are needs for people who actually know how to run machines, uh, going to a two-year community college. You know, there are lots of options that kids have um, to make those trade-offs between cost and value for them. Not, not everybody's going to make the same choice, and that's okay. But if we can do a good job of providing the language and vocabulary so people aren't afraid to ask the questions and then venues where they can learn about those options, then I think people will be able to make choices that they're more, they're more comfortable with. Mm -hmm. um, it is extraordinarily expensive to go to a small liberal arts college today. Um, and you know the, the, the top 10 schools in the country, the wealthy schools are able to give scholarships to kids whose parent family incomes are, 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 you know, in the, the low six figures and below, but that's only a small number of schools. So, so these are really tough choices, but um, if we make them wisely and with our eyes open, I think um, that, that kids are able to, to do this. And I'll also mm -hmm. add that personally, my parents wanted to send me to one of these schools. I took loans. They were able to be very helpful, but they said, you have to major in something so that when you get out, you can get a job because then you're off the payroll. <laughs> so they were very clear with me about um, what I needed to be doing. And fortunately, I love mm. math and science. 
So, um, so there, there's never just one thing. It's a whole panoply of, of factors, but it all comes down to basic, having basic financial education as a start. How does this all jive with what we're talking about, the importance of financial literacy from a young age? Uh, Nan, when we look at the economic realities in our country, uh, so many Americans who haven't seen their wages or salaries increase, and yet they're paying more for higher education, paying more for their insurance, uh, having trouble paying the rent. Uh, and, you know, we can talk, you know, forever about and the importance of financial literacy, but, you know, in some ways the odds are stacked against many Americans. So how do we talk about these disparities? Right. Well, um, unfortunately, um, our organization can't, can't set policy, but uh, we can help to make it easier for people to survive and even thrive within the capitalistic system that we we live in. Um, and, uh, you know, we have a lot of challenges today in this country. And um, uh, I think some of those are, you know, people are always talking about addressing addressing those, those things. Uh, but, um, you know, one of the, the real inequities that we see in the research tells us is in the Black community. And uh, Raj Chetty, who I'm pleased to say is one of our honorees this year at our benefit coming up in a month, and as a professor at Harvard, has done really groundworking groundbreaking work on uh, uh, race and economics and uh, mobility, economic mobility. And it turns out that um, intergenerational wealth transfer is particularly low and in some cases goes backwards um, in the black community. And um, it's, it's, it's a challenge because so many people that I am fortunate enough to know, their parents saved money and they, they were able to help with college or first home and maybe they inherited their parents' home and were able to sell that and have some other nice things to do for their family. Um, but in the black community, um, uh, his research shows that there are huge differences um, in employment rates between black and white men, and that drives uh, downward mobility, actually. So that that is a, a real challenge that I think we, we have to confront. Financial education is not the only tool uh, to address that, but it's it's an essential piece, right? That's that's not going to solve the problem, but but we have to give people the the tool sets once we throw mm -hmm. them the lifeline. Um, so that's one that particularly is concerning to me. Also, um, women have real challenges around um, around money. They are often less co uh, confident in it as investors. They participate at a lower rate uh, in stock markets. Stock markets. So that means. Even if they're fortunate to have a job and a 401k plan, they might not take full advantage of it in a way that uh, a man will. And uh, as you know, there are still there are still still you know other issues that women face in the workplace. So um, not having financial skills uh, puts them at a, a deficit in terms of creating wealth for themselves. And they're also really great jobs in in finance and the financial community. Right, every organization in the world. Even Connected Public Radio has somebody who's a controller or an accountant who's looking after the books. So uh, to address that, we actually started a program or um, took a program uh, that was small and growing called Invest in Girls. Um, and we brought that into our portfolio. And the goal there is to teach girls about personal finance, but importantly, to introduce them to careers in finance so that they can have greater opportunity. Um, we've uh, established access zones 
in communities, marginalized communities throughout the country, where kids have less access to this um, information and where they are likely to be one of those families where there's a backward move in intergenerational wealth transfer. And we've doubled down our efforts there to train teachers and put resources in those schools. So are those things going to move the needle? No, but all by themselves? No, but I'm a big believer that every little bit count. Every step forward is a step forward. And pretty soon after a while, you realized you've gone a mile. So I think there are things we can do to, you know, just even in financial education to address uh, some of these uh, these inequities. Um, I wanted to start- take some calls, uh, Nan, before we run out of time. Elizabeth calling in from Hartford. Hi, Elizabeth. What did you want to share? Well, good morning. Um, first, I want to say thank you for this program. Financial literacy um, is a big part of what I do at my um, in my position at Community Renewal Tech. I learned nothing when I was growing up. I had to teach it to myself. But I wanted to touch base back on the conversation as of late and dealing with financial literacy in marginalized communities of color is much different than dealing with financial literacy in the dominant culture, simply because people with little means don't think that they're, they have any money to manage. So changing that basic mindset is a challenge that's already been noted. Um, and, and that, and that is what we have to concentrate on in in my milieu, helping people understand that it's not having a lot of money to manage. It's managing the money that you have. And so at the community renewal team, we've developed a 14-week financial literacy curriculum that teaches from soup to nut financial, from basic money management to retirement savings. We have developed workshops um on the four pillars of basic money management. Getting people to the table has been um, increasing because of COVID-19 and people being afraid of their financial future is is a silver lining, if you will, to our global pandemic. And, you know, but just getting people to understand that it's not the amount of money you have to manage, it's managing the money that you have is the key. Well, Elizabeth, thank you for making that excellent point and telling us about that program through Community Renewal Team. We thank you for your work. We're glad that resource is there for uh, residents uh, in our state. Uh, with me today on Where We Live, Nan Morrison, President and CEO of the Council for Economic Education. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up after the break, we'll learn more about a program that helps students at Southern Connecticut State University. Stay with us. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchuk. Now, it's clear after talking with my guest, Nan Morrison, that we all benefit when taught financial literacy early in our lives. Here in our state, Southern Connecticut State University has a program to help college students. Joining us now on Zoom is Lou DeLuca, coordinator of the Student Financial Literacy and Advising at Southern Connecticut State University. Lou, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. 
So tell me about your role uh, at Southern. Obviously, uh, financial aid loans is something that that's the college students are, are thinking about and learning about. But what are some other lessons that you're teaching students there? Yeah, so at Southern, my role is, is really twofold. Uh, first and foremost, I assist students and families with paying for college. So navigating the costs, the expenses, and the opportunities for financial aid, scholarship, payment plans, things of that nature. So there's the paying for college aspect. And then to me, the true financial literacy is, as Dan has, has stated with her organization, really teaching money, basics of budgeting and banking and taxes, credit, investing, things of that nature. So how do we help students afford to attend the university and payment options? with ideally the least amount of debt? And really, how do we teach money so that they have real tools to use while in college and beyond to have you know, financial wellness in their lives? Mm. Were you able to hear Elizabeth who called in earlier from Community Renewal Team and she talked about how the message is different when you're talking with people in marginalized communities. So how do you have that conversation with students uh, who may come from wealthier backgrounds versus those who you know, are working, are taking classes at night because they're working during the day and they've got other responsibilities as well as juggling, juggling college, Lou? Absolutely, absolutely. So the challenge with, with when it comes to paying for college, you know, in financial literacy is what I described as willing and able. I have students and families that are willing, but not able. I have students and families that are able that may not be willing. So it's really breaking it down to, you know, the bare bones of direct costs. So the university charges X, this is what it costs to be a full-time student versus a part-time student. If we commute, then we're talking simply tuition and fees. If we're living on campus, obviously we add room and board. So a lot of it's you know basic math in terms of where we're starting with, where the challenge becomes is, okay, so how is this gonna get paid? And you're right, some families have the means you know, that don't need financial education or financial support. They can write a check in, in the university bill as paid not reality for a good amount of students who really need to understand grants, scholarships, student loans, parent loans, what does loan repayment look like, you know, things of that nature. So for me, each student and family is individual. We start with the basics and we see what opportunities there are to make it work for them financially. Mm. So there's uh, the one aspect of uh, paying for college and thinking about uh, the career path that, that will help you do that if you end up taking out student loans. But then I remember when I was in college, Lou, it, the credit card companies, they would send a lot of offers in the mail. And you know, under like, how do you teach uh, students to think about you know making smart choices even after they graduate and how credit works and why it's important to budget? Right. No, that's huge. I, to me, credit and investing, you know, are really pillars of future financial success. Yes, budgeting is important in understanding needs versus wants. But with credit, what I try to show students in, you know, the basics of, you know, with a credit card, you know, there's a lot of, you know, misinformation out there about credit cards. But what I teach my students is use the credit card as a tool for you. Understand how interest works if you don't pay your bills on time. Understand that you should only be charging what you can pay on a monthly basis. Understand how you use that credit card in this example as a tool 
to establish good credit because your credit's going to be pulled when you apply for a job, right? Your credit's going to be pulled when you want to rent an apartment or you want to buy a property or, or lease a car or something of that nature. So a lot of it is planting seeds. You know, some of my students come with some of this basic knowledge, some do not. So it's a matter of really seeing, especially with with credit, how valuable it is to your future. So let's understand the basics now so that we don't make huge mistakes. Lots of us learn by making mistakes. In the world of credit, I don't think that's a really good way to learn because if I screw something up on my credit, it's sitting on my credit report for seven years. Well, that's not the kind of mistake that I want to, you know, those implications that are going to last, you know, seven years or so. So it's, it's teaching the basics where, where I really fear, fear the, see the reward is when students come to me and say, wow, I've increased my FICO score from X to Y because, you know, you talked about how to use a credit card wisely and it works, you know, or needs versus wants. Wow, I now have an emergency fund. You know, I have a rainy day fund, you know, so I don't have tons of those. I wish I had, you know, tons of those stories to tell, but my hope is by at least planting the seeds with students at the college level, that they're going to reap the benefits long after, you know, they've since graduated. So it sounds like you're a financial advisor for students at Southern, but this is a a position that uh, isn't duplicated in other places in our state, Lou? Not really. Um, A few other schools have, are are, are doing some financial literacy. I don't think they're doing it at the level that, that we're doing it at Southern. To me, it's, it's a commitment that the university makes. And, you know, I was fortunate that Southern made this commitment, you know, to me seven years ago, you know, to be able to not only help with the paying for college piece for students and families that need it, but really teach the money piece. There are tons of schools throughout the country that do financial literacy and they have full-blown money management centers with a student peer staff and professional staff you know, we're still young in the sense at Southern. It's I'm an office of one and have been for, you know, for seven years. So it really depends on the priority of the university. You know, some universities believe that this is the function of a financial aid office and it's an extension of what a financial aid office does. I'm an office of one without connection to the financial aid office. So, you know, so my role is different as defined by our university at Southern. Other schools may be doing some things differently. Uh, Earlier, we talked to Nan Morrison about how some states require financial literacy before graduation. Connecticut is not on that list. Uh, When you are working with students who've graduated from Connecticut high schools, how how important do you think it would be to have a personal finance course for these students before they end up at, at your door, Lou? Right. Well, (laughs) that can be a double-edged sword. So when I go into the classroom and present to students, I will normally ask them how many of them took a personal finance class. Usually it's 10 to 20 percent. And some it was mandatory, very few. Some it was an elective. But what is startling to me after, you know, the presentation that I do on, you know, an overview of financial literacy and education is when I ask, are these the kinds of things that you learned about more often than not, sometimes they're telling me no. So, um, so again, sometimes I feel like I'm starting from scratch, which is fine, you know. And then sometimes I feel I'm building on basic knowledge that they already have, or educating and updating knowledge on 
misinformation that they have. There's, there's misinformation out there in the credit card world that students come to me all the time and say, I've been told that it's good to carry a balance every month. You know, and obviously that's not a good thing, late fees, finance charges, interest, but there's that miscommunications out there. So, so you know, with the right high school program, you know, a, a year-long class, graduation requirement, I think the more structured it is, the more students will get out of it. And then again, it's not something that you can teach in an hour, right? You, you have to introduce concepts and then there's that, you know, that reinforcement. So what I try to do is do my student presentations and then encourage students to then come meet with me individually so we can talk specifically what they want to talk about, be it their 401k at their job, filing their taxes, credit, whatever the case may be. You're hearing Lou DeLuca. He's Student Financial Literacy and Advising Coordinator at Southern Connecticut State University. I wanted to fit in one last call. Katie in East Hampton, New York. Katie, what did you want to share? We have to have a couple of minutes. Hi, thank you. Um, I want to thank you for having the discussion. I worked as a HUD-certified housing counselor between 2006 and 2012. And during the housing crisis, um, there was a tremendous impact on children. Uh, a lot of kids were displaced. The, um, the parents wouldn't discuss what was happening with the kids because there was a lot of shame and they felt at fault. But um, obviously the kids pick up on all that stress. So uh, I um, made a couple presentations at the local high school with just a really brief financial literacy piece about predatory lending, negative amortization. Um, we had a very hot real estate market at the time, and they were loaning 140% of what the property was actually worth. Mm. So I tried to impart to the kids that, you know, bad things happen to good people, that it wasn't, you know, nobody was necessarily at fault. Um, and just to try to take some of the... Um, mystery and the, the stress out of it, if they understood what was happening, they could cope better. And I think it's very important that financial literacy be taught before people have access to credit. So they're already positioned. They already, you know, going in, they have an idea of, of how that all works, home economics and personal finance. Well, thank you, Katie, for sharing that with us, and I'm glad to hear that you're able to uh, talk with those uh, children about uh, predatory lending uh, and for them not to feel ashamed. I think that's really important. Thank you for the call. Uh, Nan, we just, uh, uh, we're going to be running out of time real quick, but I wanted to give you some uh, time for final thoughts. Nan Morrison from the Council for Economic Education. Uh, thanks, Lucy, uh, and thanks to the callers. They were all excellent, great points. Uh, if you're uh, living in Connecticut, you should go to your school and uh, ask that this be taught. Uh, we're available to train your teachers so that they do have the right information, as Lou pointed out, to teach thoughtfully and completely about these things before the kids get to, to Lou. Um, uh, be thoughtful about uh, the marginalized communities of color that Elizabeth taught, uh, talked about. It's very important that we reach these students because they have the least access and have the most to lose, but also the most to gain. They need the vocabulary and the language. And if you're an employer in Connecticut, you can help. You can, you can educate your brand new employees and make sure that they are making good choices as well. 
So um, at the end of the day, I think you've heard it all here consistently. If we can get this into our public schools, we can help our children create better lives around the horizon lines of their choice. So please help us to do that. Thank you so much, Nan Morrison. It's been a great hour to hear from you and the others, President and CEO of Council for Economic Education. And what a great program at Southern Connecticut State University, Lou DeLuca. Thank you so much for your time today, coordinator of the Student Financial Literacy and Advising there. Test Terrible produced today's show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. And Carmen Baskoff was on phones today. Thanks for listening.